The government of Canada and public health experts are taking action to protect Canadians from COVID-19. Protect yourself and others, especially those with medical conditions and older adults. Wash your hands often. Avoid touching your face. Cough or sneeze into your arm and disinfect surfaces. You should also avoid crowded places. Avoid all non-essential travel outside of Canada. And if you're sick, stay home. To learn more, visit canada.ca slash coronavirus. A message from the Government of Canada. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Carol Off. Good evening, I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. The jury has spoken. Harvey Weinstein is convicted on two counts in a New York courtroom. Our guest is among the former film producer's many accusers. She says today feels like the start of something new. The ruling is a milestone for the Me Too movement, and the story is far from over. An LA Times reporter who was in the courtroom today says he's now looking to his own town where Weinstein faces still more charges. A devastating blow. L'Arche International uncovers evidence of sexual abuse by its founder, Jean Vanier, a man celebrated around the world as a champion for people with developmental disabilities. We speak to the person who kick-started that investigation. She's a hidden figure no more. The late Katherine Johnson's work helped NASA get to the moon. We'll talk to the writer who helped her get the recognition she deserved in life tourist trap. For the past year and a half, people have been traveling for miles to see a literal hole in the wall in Derbyshire, England. Or so they claim in online reviews, which it turns out may be full of holes themselves. And hardcore. George Hood didn't just set a new world record for planking. The former Marine did it at 62 years old, proving he's still more than fit for duty. As it happens, the Monday edition Radio that's all for breaking records, but thinks this one sounds abominable. Harvey Weinstein is guilty. As you've probably heard on the news, a jury in New York found the former movie producer guilty today of sexually assaulting two women. He was convicted of committing a criminal sex act against Miriam Haley in 2006 and of third-degree rape against Jessica Mann in 2013. He was acquitted of the most serious charge, predatory sexual assault. Here is what New York District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. said after the verdict. Rape is rape whether the survivor reports within an hour, within a year, or perhaps never. It's rape despite the complicated dynamics of power and consent after an assault. It's rape even if there is no physical evidence and even if it happened a long time ago. This is the new landscape for survivors of sexual assault in America, I believe, and this is a new day. New York District Attorney Cyrus Vance, Jr. Mr. Weinstein, who was taken into custody in a medical facility, will appeal, according to one of his lawyers. The conviction comes after dozens of women came forward with accusations against Mr. Weinstein, dating back decades. Catherine Kendall is one of those women. We reached her in Los Angeles. Catherine, first of all, how did it feel to hear that Harvey Weinstein was declared guilty? <laughs> well, it's um, it's incredible. It it feels like a monumental win for victims and for for the women that I know and that I've met that have 
been on this journey, it's just, um, it's a really big day. I, I am emotional talking about it even now. <laughs> I was so trained for a not guilty because everyone told me that was, that it was just, that's the way it usually goes. And it's really hard to prosecute and prove rape. And there was a lot of victim blaming going on during that trial. I was there, I saw it and I was really concerned. There were moments I thought it's not going to go our way, you know, and, and, I was preparing to feel defeated mm-hmm. and, you, and how I would handle that. And you just heard uh, 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 the, the DA, Cyrus Vance Jr., he not only said, he describes all that, but he says that it's a, it's a new landscape in America, and it's, this is a, a new day for people who are making uh, these charges. D- does that seem to be true to you? That is my hope, and that is what all this has been for. That's what I'm fighting for, and... Uh, and I think it is. I do think it is. I think it is a new day. I think that people have to be considering all of these things in a different way than they ever have before. And I, I'm really hopeful that more people will come forward with with their claims and their, you know, their truth. That 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 sort of the shroud of shame will start to lift, and people won't be so afraid that they won't be heard. Mm-hmm. We did hear, though, that one of the accusers in this New York trial, Annabella Sciorra, who really, you described the, the, the difficulty of these, the testimonies and the cross-examination. Hers was, was quite extraordinary, um, and yet it it, the decision was to find Mr. Weinstein not guilty on the charge of predatory <sighs> sexual assault, which was the, one of the charges that she was included in those charges as, as, as a victim. What did, what did that mean to you? You know, it's, it's, it's shocking. I mean, I was there. I listened to, I watched her and listened to her testimony, and I thought she was incredible. And I don't know how you could be in that room and listen to her and not believe her. I think it has to do with the statute of limitations and that that still really needs to be changed and looked at. I don't think it has to do with not believing her, her testimony. You know, we, we were all worried about the fact that the predatory count wouldn't be, he wouldn't be guilty of that. We were concerned, but we all, we all know in our hearts that he, he is a predator who is, you know, he, he has a pattern over 30 years. And, you know, it's difficult. I hope she doesn't feel like she failed in any way or let anyone down because she was magnificent. And I actually think that her testimony helped the whole, the whole very much. I want to ask you, because when we spoke with you um, as the trial began in January, and uh, you talked about the, the other two women, uh, Miriam Haley and Jessica Mann, and you were saying to us that you felt so grateful to them for taking on the burden of going to court. And then you, w- yeah. when you look at w- what they went through, how, how difficult do you think this trial has been for them? I think that both of those women are, are incredible, like heroes. <laughs> you know, I, I think that both of them knew that this was complicated. They weren't lying to themselves about that. They knew that going in. But they were both really sure that they had been you know, at the hands of a predator. And they, there was no, there was no question in their mind. And they were just going forward telling their truth. And I think that they were prepared, which is incredible, because they were walking into the world 
looking at their lives and and um, picking apart their lives in a way that we seem to only do with victims of sexual assault. Can you um, imagine what it would have been like to, because you were one of, what, about 80 women who have accused Harvey Weinstein of sexual misconduct. Could you, did you put yourself in their shoes and imagine what it would be like to be one of those women on, in, in this trial? I absolutely did. And I don't know if I, I mean, I can't honestly tell you that I would have had the courage. There's nothing easy about it. Just because I had an experience, you know, of, harassment or assault with Harvey doesn't mean that I would be willing to take the stand because because of what it's like to take the stand is so it's it's petrifying. I mean, it's designed to to break you down and I think that that can be its own new trauma. So, I can't I mean, I I would like to think that I would, but I can just say that the women who did I don't know, I mean, it takes an, an enormous amount of endurance and it was a real gift. It was real they were they were you know very generous with with their with their souls really to do that for so many people if you could speak to them Demiriam Haley or Jessica Mann right now what would you say i would say that you have changed the world that the risk you took was worth it that i have been here with you the whole way and i will always be here with you and that you are absolute heroines do you think it has changed the world? Do you think that this, because the the whole Me Too movement began with with Mr. Weinstein and those who came forward to say, uh, to make their accusations, do you think that the entertainment industry has learned anything, has changed at all? I think it has to have changed. We We came forward about one of the, maybe the most powerful producer in Hollywood. I mean, he will be in jail. That There's no doubt about it. And yeah, this is someone who never saw a consequence. So I think that if we can see that there are consequences for him, that women everywhere are going to start to feel safer and that everyone will start to take all of this more seriously. It's here to stay. Catherine, we will leave it there. And I really appreciate speaking with you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Thanks. Catherine Kendall is an actor and one of the women who have accused Harvey Weinstein of sexual misconduct. She was in Los Angeles. And you can find more on that story on our website, cbc.ca slash AIH. Here is Gloria Allred, the lawyer for Miriam Haley and some of the other women who have made allegations against Mr. Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein, this justice has been a long time coming, but it's finally here. And it's not the end because L.A. is still going to proceed. Ms. Allred is referring to charges Mr. Weinstein is facing in Los Angeles, where he's accused of raping one woman and sexually assaulting another woman in 2013. James Queeley is covering the Weinstein court cases for the Los Angeles Times. We reached him today in New York. James, these charges in Los Angeles were laid on the day Mr. Weinstein's trial in New York opened. So what exactly is he accused of doing in the Los Angeles case? Sure. Uh, he's been accused of four different counts of sexual assault. There was allegations stem from accusations made by two women related to events in 2013 in West Los Angeles and Beverly Hills. One woman is an Italian model who has accused him of rape. The other woman was actually one of the prior bad acts witnesses who testified in New York. Her name is Lauren Young. 
She said Mr. Weinstein allured her up to a hotel room from a dinner. They, uh, another person was there. She became trapped in the bathroom with him. She accused him of groping her and ultimately um, pleasuring himself in front of her while being obviously against her will. How similar or dissimilar are the, the charges in L.A. to those in New York? A little different because, at least to the best of my knowledge, the women making the accusations in Los Angeles did not have these longer, more elaborate relationships with Mr. Weinstein that the some of the women in New York did. They weren't actresses who had performed in pictures or otherwise, you know, like Mimi Halle did, worked on a show that his company had a hand in. They don't, I don't believe they stayed in touch with him that often after the fact. These cases contain of the sort of myths or stereotypes around uh, sexual assault victims that the defense tried to employ in New York. That would probably be the main difference. Uh-huh. And yes, and that was one that considered to be one of the stumbling blocks for the case was that the women had continued these relationships. And so this is not going to affect the Los Angeles trial. At least as far as we know so far, uh, the inverse of that argument that I've heard, probably one of the biggest problems for the L.A. case will be that Lauren Young did testify in the New York case. It will now give defense attorneys out on the West Coast, you know, a very long time to scour over her story, look for weaknesses to prod at, inconsistencies. It's really going to give them a, a lot of material to work with for their cross-examination, having heard uh, her entire story in court already. We know that Mr. Weinstein is now scheduled to be sentenced in New York on March the 11th, and he faces prison time between 5 and 25 years, possibly. One of his lawyers said after the verdict they plan to appeal. Does all that affect the timing of the Los Angeles case? To the best of our knowledge right now, the, nothing is going to happen in L.A. ahead of the sentencing. The appeal could conceivably delay it, but that, I guess, will depend on the grounds and when that's heard. He has not even appeared in L.A. yet. He hasn't even entered a, you know, a basic not guilty plea, so there is a chance that that first appearance may happen just to get the ball rolling sometime this year, but even that's just speculating. Really, nothing is going to be known, and the LADA's office has not made any public comments about the case since announcing the charges and probably won't until after the sentencing is complete in New York. The women in the, in the L.A. case, at what point did they go to the police about Mr. Weinstein? The genesis of those two charges are a little murky right now. My newspaper had interviewed one of the women who, you know, has not given her name yet, but she's an Italian model. Her case was presented by the LAPD to the district attorney's office in February of 2018. I believe she had spoken to the LAPD in late 2017. Uh, Ms. Young's case was actually routed through the Manhattan DA's office to Los Angeles prosecutors, so it's a little unclear when exactly she came forward. Her case didn't come to the possession of L.A. authorities until last year, though. So why do you think it took so long for the district attorney in L.A. to lay these charges? When I've asked her about this before, uh, she has basically said the case was filed when it was ready to be filed. She has mentioned, you know, the other woman I keep referencing, not Lauren Young, who testified in New York, the, the Italian model. You know, she lived out of the country. It took a while for them to find witnesses to corroborate certain parts of her story. They may have, and this would just be a guess, but they may have wanted to bring as many charges as they could at the same time instead of adding victims piecemeal, because they did investigate eight total allegations of sexual assault against Mr. Weinstein in Southern California. Three of them were outside of the uh, statute of limitations. Most of them are too old to prosecute. There are three that are still actively being investigated, though, so it is possible that they could file additional charges. But again, how 
they will act, given what happened today in New York, is very unclear. What effect does the testimonies and the evidence presented in New York, what effect might that have in the L.A. case, both for prosecution and for the defense? Well, as we said, you know, Lauren, Lauren Young is one of the primary accusers in the charges filed in L.A., so her testimony, we don't really know how credible it was to the jury's verdict here, but she did, you know, at least get to kind of have a trial run of speaking in public. You know, these situations are are terrifying for some people. We saw, you know, some of the witnesses in this case break down on the stand. You know, Ms. Young kind of got to do that in a courtroom setting once before she'll have to do it again in Los Angeles. We also got some idea of how his defense might work. It was largely the idea that these situations were consensual. He wasn't denying they took place. Uh, you know, he may have a different legal team in California, so we don't, again, can't really draw a through line between those two. Donna Rotuno, uh, the Chicago-based attorney who represented him in New York, is not currently listed as his lead counsel in L.A. That's a different one by the name of Blair Burke. So she could have a completely different strategy. Just finally, how is Harvey Weinstein being regarded right now in L.A., in movie circles? I mean, this trial is now going to be at the the center of his world. What's the reaction? What's the sense in L.A. and in Hollywood about Mr. Weinstein right now? I mean, I live in a courthouse, not on Hollywood Boulevard, so I'm not really in those circles. But generally speaking, um, he's largely been excommunicated from that world. And I don't know if the the trial, you know, even if he had been acquitted, I don't think he would have suddenly been welcomed back into uh, the movie land with open arms or anything like that. James, we'll leave it there and we'll be watching this trial. Thank you so much. Thank you. James Queeley covers crime and courts for the Los Angeles Times. He was in New York. You rest your own body weight on your forearms and your feet. Squeeze your glutes. Put your heels together. Ensure your whole body, including your neck, is parallel to the floor. And hold it. That's how to do a plank. And most of us can probably hold one for about the length of time it took for me to give that explanation of a plank and reach the end of this sentence. George Hood is not like most of us. Nine days ago, he planked for eight hours... 15 minutes and 15 seconds. And in doing so, he set a new Guinness World Record for the second time. We reached Mr. Hood in Naperville, Illinois. George, big congratulations. Thank you so much for reaching out to me. I appreciate that. How are you feeling? Have you completely recovered from being in a plank position for more than eight hours? No, I'm not completely recovered. I never telegraph weakness, but uh, the recovery has been progressive. But discomfort was deep tissue. So it has to, the body heals from the inside out. But are you just, I mean, you would be totally justified in just going to be a couch potato for the next month after this, you know? You could just, you don't have to do anything. Well, I wouldn't say a month. I'll, I'll, you can give me three days. Okay, so how, the, doing this for, what, eight hours, 15 minutes, 15 seconds, was there a point during this being in plank position for that length of time that you thought, I can't do this anymore? Funny you ask. Um, yes, every long plank I do in training and obviously the main event has its at least one moment when that demon creeps into your head, jumps on your back, and starts to tell you, you know, create self doubt and so forth. And that 
for this particular event, that happened at about hour six. I remember looking at the coach and said, where is hour six? Can you give me hour six? And it, it just, I wasn't there yet. And when I make that time call and I'm not where I think I should be, that can be devastating. So that's when everybody gets in close, we take a lot of group photos just to kind of distract myself. And then I break through that wall. But hour six going into hour seven was really critical. And I cranked the music up because loud music chases away the demons. They don't like loud music, <laughs> but it wasn't it wasn't always pleasant. Okay, you had a party, but you stayed in plank position. I mean, does, but how often do you get so, to have a break when you're when you're going for a Guinness record for being in plank for this many hours? What 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 do you do? You have to be in a plank position for the entire eight hours, or do you have any breaks? No, there's no breaks. You're just in the plank position for eight hours and fifteen minutes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You know, most people listening to this are really, really happy when they can do a plank for 30 seconds. That's a starting point. Every tree has to be planted. <laughs> and once that tree is planted, those roots grow and people become stronger, just like a tree. Okay. How did you get strong enough to do this? What was your training? Training. Um, uh, this, for this last uh, ordeal, uh, my training began probably uh, about eight, nearly almost 18 months ago after the June 2018 event. I'll just give it to you in a nutshell. My training is, uh, I budgeted seven hours a day to get done what I have to do. That included about four hour, four to five hours of plank time each day uh, in no more than three sets, at least uh, 700 push-ups a day, 2,000 crunches, about 500 leg squats, bar squats, holding onto the bar, um, about 500 band curls with the weighted band for the arms and shoulders, and my squats, about 500 uh, toe squats, a day <laughs> and leg lifts. The, the, the hood fitness package will come out in, in a few months. It's, it's been in demand and I'm going to put it all down on, on video now and people can do it as they wish. Okay. So your 700 pushups a day is about 695 more than most people. Your 2000 sit-ups got uh -huh. to be more than, I don't know, 1990 <laughs> more than most people. You, do you think people are going to see the George Hood method of how to get to be this strong and they could actually do what you've done? Absolutely. And why not? Everybody is capable of this. I've proven that uh, proof of concept countless times with people who never thought they could even set a world record for that matter. Truly, anybody can do what they want if they put their mind to it and commit. Okay, but just for anyone who's thinking, okay, it's fine for a young fellow like that to do is, but just tell them how old you are. I'm 62. <laughs> 62. But understand, please, as I tell my peers, 62 is just a number. There are no excuses anymore. You think others could actually do what you've done? Absolutely. Why would they Absolutely. do it? Absolutely. Why, why would, what would motivate them? I don't know. That's a personal journey that people uh, and a commitment that people have to make. I use the plank uh, pose in, on my platform to think and, and study uh, myself. And it's my way of dealing and, uh, with, with demons that, that confront me on, on a daily basis, you know, uh, relationships to financial to where I'm going to live next year, uh, future plans, uh, how the, how my sons are doing. It can be very therapeutic. And before you know it, the time clicks by. <laughs> okay, what's it your does. what's your next goal? What are you going to do now? I'm going to move into the push-up genre. And I'm working on push-ups now. And you can pick whatever time you want, hour, two hours. I'm going to pursue something like that and, uh, and, and take a look at that record. And that may happen sooner rather than later because of all the plank training I've done. What's the what's the record on 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 that what, for for setups? The, the push most push-ups in an hour is about twenty eight hundred and change right now. Set <laughs> by a guy I believe over in New Zealand. Good guy, good good candidate for the for the for the, that kind of event. 
I'm looking forward to training for that. And you're going to push him off his record. I'll, I'll surpass whatever his mark is. <laughs> <laughs> George, again, congratulations and good luck. <laughs> hey, I, I really appreciate the call and, and all the best to those in camp. Oh, and just one thing we should point out that the I think that the plank position Guinness record by a woman is a woman from Canada. Did you know that? It is. Yes, I, I know her. Donna, a good friend of mine. I worked with her for years, preparing her for what she ended up doing here last spring, here in, my, my, in Naperville, Illinois. Uh, so huge congrats to her. She did very well and posted that 419.55. So she's, she's Canada's sweetheart, no doubt. You bet. Okay, thanks, George. You bet. Thank you. Bye-bye Bye. now. 62-year-old George Hood set a new Guinness World Record for longest time in the abdominal plank position. We reached him in Naperville, Illinois. And you can find more on our webpage and see videos and photos of Mr. Hood at cbc.ca slash AIH. The Louvre is a pretty nice museum. But if you're looking for a real artistic masterwork, let me recommend a visit to the town of Ilkston in Derbyshire, England. Yes, it's about seven and a half hours drive away from Paris, but it's worth the trip to see the NatWest Hole. For the last year and a half, people have been posting euphoric reviews of the NatWest Hole, which is a circular hole in the brick wall outside a NatWest bank machine in Ilkston. It was built into the wall so you could see if anyone was waiting on the other side to rob you. Functional, yet, according to these reviews, fascinating and phenomenal. People wrote, one-of-a-kind architectural masterpiece that draws visitors from near and far, an adventure not to be missed. And it is said that people often faint upon first sight of this magnificent structure, unable to deal with the unrivaled attack on the senses that the hole in the wall delivers. And those are just three of the many TripAdvisor posts lauding this haunting hole. Of course, there are Philistines, like the person who gave it one star, writing, what is going on here? A round hole in a wall, which is part of the NatWest branch next to a cash machine, whatever next. And TripAdvisor itself, which has suspended further reviews saying, they do not describe a first-hand experience, which suggests, unlikely as it is, that TripAdvisor thinks people are just kidding about the power of this, this wall hole. Well, that, that just can't be true. Even in photos, it's simply breathtaking. So make the trip to Ilkston and get ready, because you've got your whole life ahead of you. Jean Vanier dedicated his life to championing the rights of the most vulnerable, which is why new revelations about the Catholic philosopher have come as such a blow to those who admired him. The Globe and Mail has reported details from an independent investigation into Mr. Vanier, uncovering sexually abusive relationships he had with at least six women over the span of 35 years. Mr. Vanier died in 2019. In the 1960s, he founded L'Arche, which grew into a global group of communities that supports people with intellectual disabilities. None of the victims are intellectually disabled. 
The women, who were assistants and nuns, describe how Mr. Vanier manipulated and even coerced them sexually. Stéphane Posner is the director of L'Arche International. We reached him in Paris, France. Mr. Posner, as you know, to so many people, Jean Vanier was a living saint. And so how, how are you reconciling that side of the man with what we've learned in this investigation? Well, we're not. Uh, that's because, you know, there's a gap between the man we actually knew and, and what we are putting into light today. And this gap is what, you know, creates that shock and the fact that, you know, there's a big hurt. And obviously it's a, it's a blow for our members and for myself. Just for the, those who might not know of the legacy of Jean Vanier, he was considered to, that he, he had a revolutionary alternative to how the intellectually disabled were being treated. What did he do that, was, that changed everything? Well, I would say that, you know, basically the idea is quite simple. He, he took two people out of a psychiatrist's hospital in 1964, and he said one thing. He said, these people are my friends. And that was the beginning of the adventure, the beginning of L'Arche. And so our communities are not only play a place of care, but a place of friendship. And yet at the same time, it's been found that on the, the quote, balance of probabilities, Jean Vanier had at least six relationships with women at L'Arche, some of them abusive, all of them coercive and non-consensual, and that happened over a stretch of more than 30 years. How is it that we're just hearing about it now? So I, I just want to give a, an important point. It's adult women, non-disabled. In 2016, we received a first testimony of a woman who questioned the behavior of Jean towards her. And at that time, obviously, we presented that testimony to Jean, which he explained us that this relationship was consenting. But in March 2019, so just a few months before Jean died, we received a second testimony very similar to the previous one. And quite immediately, we decided to launch that inquiry. We passed it on to an external body to do this type of investigation. Really? Nobody knew that this was going on, that these women, they were associated with L'Arche. They were in positions yes. of where he had a, not just authority over him, but he was considered to be really one of the most extraordinary people in that whole field. Did no one know that these women were suffering, as they have now said in this report? That's a question that raised very naturally. And obviously, the question is, is there member of L'Arche or any leader of L'Arche that actually knew, understood, and covered up. And today, to our knowledge, we've got no indication that we can point out someone that actually knew and understood and covered up. But, um, you know, we've said and said again that the, um, the, the public communication that we're doing today is not the, the end of our work. We know that that, that uh, Jean Vanier did have, they, these women have said that they told him that they found it very painful what he was doing, the approach he was making at them. Can you just give us some examples? Because they've quoted him as what he's, what, what the kinds of ways he would justify his approach to them. Tell us a bit about what you learned. So that's one of the most, you know, strange part of the story is that each of these women who've got no knowledge of their stories, they don't know each other, report similar facts. And this sexual behavior was always with some kind of very unusual uh, mystical or spiritual explanation 
that were there to justify them. I'll give one example of one nun who did not want these sexual advances from Mr. Vanier. And uh, when she says, when I expressed my astonishment, he said that, that I could manifest my love to Jesus with him. And uh, Jesus and myself, he said, this, they're not two but one. It is Jesus who loves you through me. You know this man. You know what he represents. How did you feel about learning that? Obviously, we were astonished. But what is extraordinary, that it seems that for some people, it had made sense. The inquiry described the, the fact and the process and these women taken under uh, uh, so a psychological hold, en prise psychologique, we say in French. And it, it, that's a very you know, insidious way of taking power of someone, which, which makes it so difficult for the people which are caught in that to actually, you know, realize what's going on and then put out a complaint. And that's why we actually have paid tribute to these women, because we actually understand and realize the courage for them to come out and share this piece of their personal story. Courage and also suffering. How are you communicating this to the members of your communities, the intellectually disabled who uh, have benefited so much from Alarsh. How are you explaining to them what's going on? So, you know, that's obviously one of our major concern. You know, since weeks and now I would say a few months, we have shared the information with some of our leaders throughout the Federation for them to be ready to support their members. We also pay attention to the way we could share the information with the people with disability. And we had you know, set up tools and easy reading to make it more accessible. And obviously, people are, are, are shocked and, you know, angry and disappointed. You know yourself what Jean Vanier meant to people. I interviewed him before he died, and we had the reaction to that interview was, was overwhelming, how moved people are by what he had to say, how he could make sense of things and guide people. What happens now to that image? So, you know, um, uh, I'm in L'Arche since 35 years. And when I came in L'Arche, I, I met a man called Jean-Claude. And Jean-Claude is a man with disability, and he became my friend. Jean-Claude was my friend yesterday. He's my friend today. I can't see any reason why he couldn't be my friend tomorrow. And I think that is a feeling which is shared by, you know, many of us today. And have your have your views of Jean Vanier changed completely? Do you still see him as the same man that you knew? Of course not. And that's a, you know that keeps me awake at night because it is very difficult to understand. In fact, I can't understand how this can you know be in the same man. And that's why I'm saying there's a time for emotion, and there will try there will be a time to try and have more understanding of that. Mr. Postner, we will leave it there, and I appreciate you speaking with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Stefan Postner is the director of L'Arche International. We reached him in Paris, France. Today, police moved in on one of the major gatherings of protesters that have been blocking rail service for weeks. Near Belleville, Ontario, police made a number of arrests on the rail line where Mohawks of Tyendinaga have been camped in solidarity with anti-pipeline protests in northern B.C. But now the blockades have moved to the roads and streets. 
The disruptions included the closure of a major highway northwest of Montreal and a rolling blockade that briefly blocked traffic south of the city. In Ottawa, protesters blocked Wellington Street near Parliament Hill. The CBC's Hannah Thibodeau spoke with one of those protesters, Sophia Sidaros. Here's part of that interview. Yeah, so we're Indigenous youth and allies for Wet'suwet'en. Uh, we're peaceful land and water protectors, and we stand in solidarity with Wet'suwet'en, um, as well as other protectors across Turtle Island right now. And why did you decide to come to downtown Ottawa to shut down the streets, essentially, and get attention? I mean, this isn't really for attention. This is just to send a clear message uh, to our government saying that we see what is happening. We are aware of the arrests being made, um, and this is just a continuation of the violence that Indigenous peoples are facing um, and also that you know basic human rights right now are being violated just for being on their own territories. And what do you want Canadians and the Justin Trudeau Liberal government to understand right now? Well we are peaceful and we're unarmed. I think that's the biggest message we can send right now is that this is a peaceful movement and that um, you know further violence um, doesn't look like arresting people on their own territories. So that's not a peaceful resolution to us, and we're not going to stop until our basic human rights are being, you know, respected and fulfilled. You know, our, our right to govern ourselves, our self-determination as Indigenous peoples, we have, a, you know, sovereignty that the federal government needs to respect us for, and, um, you know, basic human rights that are being violated on the ground right now. I can't speak for Tyndanega, I can't speak for Wet'suwet'en and Unistodin. If you go there, you would see um, all the violence that is enacted on them just for being peaceful and being on their own territories. What would it take for these protests, the blockades, to stop in your mind? You need to respect fundamental basic human rights and uphold the constitution and the rule of law that this Canadian government has said so over and over again. The rule of law also applies to them in respect to Indigenous sovereignty. That was the CBC's Hannah Thibodeau speaking with Sophia Sidaros, who was taking part in a protest that blocked traffic near Parliament Hill in Ottawa today. Throughout her career, she was doubted and discriminated against because of her race and gender. But Katherine Johnson rose above and helped NASA do the same. Katherine Johnson, a mathematician at NASA, died today. She was 101. Ms. Johnson was part of NASA's computer pool, a group of mathematicians whose data powered the agency's first successful space missions. The group largely relied on the calculations of its black women members, and Ms. Johnson quickly proved she was remarkably astute and remarkably accurate. One of her most significant achievements was helping make it possible for U.S. astronaut John Glenn to orbit the Earth in 1962. After she retired, she became an advocate for mathematics education. In 2011, she told WHRO Public Media why it was important for girls to get into math. I think the difference is in the desire to mm. learn. Girls... I found myself very inquisitive. I wanted to know what was going on and why, Every, about whatever was the, the subject at the time. It was important to me to learn why. Mm. Girls, some of them are reluctant to ask questions. 
uh, they feel that that they're just being curious. But if you want to know, you ask the question. There's no such thing as a dumb question. It's dumb if you don't ask if you don't ask it. But girls are capable of doing everything men are capable of doing. Sometimes they have more imagination than men. That was Katherine Johnson back in 2011. For decades, Ms. Johnson's work was largely ignored. Margot Lee Shetterly wanted to change that. In 2016, Ms. Shetterly wrote about Ms. Johnson in her book Hidden Figures, which was also the name of the Oscar-nominated film. We reached Margot Lee Shetterly in Charlottesville, Virginia. Margot, you just heard a clip of Katherine Johnson speaking about the importance of girls getting into math and being curious. What's it like for you to hear her voice again? I'm, I listened to her voice so many times over the course of doing the interview with her, both live and then re-listening over and over again. And um, I learned so much from her. And, and that particular clip was very typical of, of Catherine. I think it gives a real insight into what made her so successful. One is that obviously she was an incredibly gifted mathematician, very smart, very talented. But she was also somebody who whose curiosity knew no bounds. And as she was just mentioning in that clip, um, if she wanted to know something, she asked a question. She wasn't shy about it. She wasn't embarrassed about it. She didn't feel badly about not knowing something um, beforehand, but she did feel badly if she did not find the answer. How did you come to meet her? How did you come to know her? I came to know her because I grew up in Hampton, Virginia, where NASA Langley, that's the um, NASA Langley Research Center where she worked, was in my hometown. My father actually worked at NASA. He's now retired, but he was a, an atmospheric research scientist and worked there at NASA, knew Catherine, knew Mary Jackson. So that that's the way I came to know her. But it wasn't until I started doing the research on the book that I knew her legacy, her work. And when you were doing that research, when you were ta- hearing about what it was like for her to be at NASA in the 40s, 50s, what did you make of that? I mean, what did, what, it's just extraordinary, first of all, that women were able to break in there, but a black woman to be able to find herself in there. What did she tell you about what it was like to work at NASA at that time? Right. Well, I think what's interesting is, is that in a way, women broke in back in the 30s. You know, we we tend to think of of women as not being good at math. This is the, you know, this old stereotype that simply is not true as as evidenced empirically by the work that these women did. Um, Of course, you know, the painful reality is that even as they were doing that work, they were segregated into a separate colored office, as it was called back then. They had colored bathrooms, and uh, and not just at NASA, but at every aspect of their lives in the state of Virginia, which was a state that practiced legalized racial segregation. Because Katherine Johnson, she begins her career at an, in the age of Jim Crow, and yet is so smart, so good at what she does. I think that in your in your book and in the film Hidden Figures, that the, really the most kind of graphic moment is her looking for a bathroom uh, that was that a, a that a, a woman of color could go to, in while she had this urgent work she needed to do as a mathematician. Yeah, and I, I just want to just comment something right there. You know, when it, whenever a a nonfiction book is adapted for film, there are things that are changed in the film from the book 
One of the things that was changed is that this incident of having to go run all the way back across campus to find a colored bathroom, that happened to Mary Jackson. Katherine Johnson, uh, it happened that in the building that she was working in, there was not a colored bathroom, um, simply because there were not very many colored, quote-unquote, employees. And so she went to the white bathroom, which is to say the only bathroom, and dared anyone to say anything to her about it. What did she have to do to get a seat at the the Space Agency's scientific briefings, which is another breakthrough that she had? She had to ask and ask and ask and ask again to essentially insist that she be included in the meetings. But Catherine, as, as evidenced by, you know, the quote that you played in the very beginning, was curious. She wanted to know. And if she had a question, she would she would not ask, stop asking until she got an answer. In this particular case, her question was, why is it not possible for me or other women, for that matter, to attend the briefing? And eventually they gave up because they, they didn't have a, a satisfactory answer to that question. Catherine Johnson was obviously a trailblazer, broke down barriers for others. Did she see herself in that light? It's interesting. When you asked her that very question, did you see yourself as a trailblazer? Did you know that you were making history? She had a sense of herself working in a team with other people and doing something that was groundbreaking. But when you start to ask her, well, you know, how did you feel being a woman, being an African-American in a mostly white workplace? Her point is, well, I was just doing my job. I loved my job. I went to work every single day. So even as the discrimination and the these structures were present, when you talk to her about her experience, that is not what she talks about. It's really about the work that she did, the pride in that work, um, the, the people that she worked with, and then looking back, you know, a little bit of what that meant for people that came behind her. She saw the film, the Oscar-nominated film based on your book, Hidden Figures, and, and saw herself as depicted in, 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 by, by that movie. How did she feel about that? What did she, how did she feel about being recognized that way? I think that she appreciated the work of the film and also of the, the credit that was given to the other women, that it wasn't just about her, that it was about Mary Jackson and also about Dorothy Vaughn. So I think there there was a little bit of, of what's all the big fuss about it. Um, but I, I think she probably also appreciated the fact that the movie shined a light, not just on her accomplishments, but on those of, of many, many other, other people. Margot, thank you for this writing the book about these remarkable women and for telling us about Katherine Johnson. Carol, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure being on the show. Bye-bye. Margot Lee Shetterly wrote Hidden Figures, The American Dream and the Untold Story of the Black Women Who Helped Win the Space Race. Katherine Johnson, a pioneering mathematician at NASA, died today. She was 101. The words to God Save the Queen echoed inside the Ontario Legislature today, marking the start of a new tradition introduced by Premier Doug Ford. The government mandated that MPPs sing God Save the Queen in addition to the Canadian National Anthem once a month before question period. 
And a lot of members raise their voices in song, but some politicians raise theirs to express disappointment, including Saul Mamakwa. He's the NDP member for the Northern Riding of Kuitanung. Today, for the first time uh, since I became an MPP for Kuitanung, the British National Anthem, God Save the Queen, uh, was sung here in the chamber. For me, the singing of God Save the Queen is a celebration of Ontario's colonial past. As settlers of this province, there are people in this um, house that may want to sing the anthem that celebrates violence, oppression, and discrimination carried out by the British Empire. But for me, as a First Nations person, I will not celebrate colonialism. Colonialism and racism remain the foundation that the buildings and the institutions of this province and country were built on. Because of this, the truth and reconciliation demands improved relations between the federal and the provincial governments of Canada and Indigenous nations. I see the revival of God Save the Queen in this house as a step backwards, a shift from modern reconciliation to a past that celebrated the colonialism that sought the destruction of cultures, languages, and communities. For me, singing that God Save the Queen is a celebration of a hurtful and violent colonial past. I cannot be part of it. Shemigwet for listening. It's Ontario NDP member Saul Mamoka speaking today at Queen's Park. He and other Indigenous MPPs are not pleased with a procedural change at the legislature mandating that God Save the Queen will be sung once a month. According to the Legislative Library, Canada's royal anthem has never been routinely sung at the Ontario legislature. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius XM, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the whole show on the CBC Listen app. Download it for free from the App Store or from Google Play. Thanks for listening. I'm Carol Off. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.